Hello and welcome to the Squiggly Animation Podcast. In this episode, we meet Robert Valley, director of the Oscar-nominated Pear Cider and Cigarettes. Hi there, kids. Here we are on episode 68. This is Ben Mitchell here with Steve Henderson. Steve... How are we liking the year so far? It's absolutely wonderful. Every single thing about it is just it's just amazing. Tip top. Tip top indeed, yeah. And here we are at the court in the limbo twixt BAFTAs and Oscars. Mm. Where much like everything else in the world these days, everything's been called into question. Expectations shattered. Disarray. Dogs and cats living together. Mass hysteria. Well, kind of. Actually, I think... Kubo winning was sort of the hopeful in the eyes of our squiggly audience, if I remember correctly. It certainly was. It was really the one that they they all wanted. It was the film that, I mean, let's face it, it was up against three Disney films. So it was the underdog in terms of what people expected to win. You know, I was happy with it. I think as, as we sort of discussed in the last episode, kind of just sort of felt like, like it deserved it. For me, it's just a more watchable experience, personally. And so when things line up with my personal taste, that's always you know, convenient. Mm-hmm. With the short film category, a bit more of a surprise, I suppose. I think Love Story, as far as our audience poll, that was the second favorite Pips to win. Yeah. And Pip it did, winningly so. <laughs> Certainly did, yeah. Uh, it was, as it always is with the BAFTAs, a very student-heavy affair. Uh, when they look for uh, British films, they tend to just go to students, <laughs> and they did, and they picked three uh, pretty good student films. You know, it's it's been a uh, an all right year for student films, and the winning film, A Love Story, is not a film I can say has bothered me this year at all. It's not been on my radar at uh, film festivals. It's not something that I've enjoyed. Uh, when I have seen it, I've just it's just kind of happened when, when I've watched it. Um, I mean, it's I suppose it's it's skillfully done. It's a nice piece of work. Uh, but would I have picked it to win? No. I mean, would you have been the ones the one I would have picked to win? No one else would have. But you know, I'd have been the one who voted for Bobby Yeah that year. Mm. That uh, he was in the running. Uh, this one it has that sort of warm, fuzzy feel feel to it um i liked the animation on the eyes and some bits some of the unusual color work at play as well sort of brings to mind kind of eastern vernacular paintings fashion sensibilities like you know the materials and colors come together as it goes but to the same extent it kind of also puts me in mind of walking around some of the st nicholas market stalls you know it's materials and fabrics and colors and i think when you kind of in your head are going to those places as far as like, Ooh, what did I like about this film? Then maybe that sort of says something a little bit about it. Uh, the characters themselves kind of made me hungry for chicken nuggets <laughs> or uh, Smith's crisps. Do you remember those? Yeah. 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 Just these big floating potatoes. I think as far as the story goes and the subject matter, I think if I were inclined to cast a critical eye over it, like if I had a podcast, say, it would be because of how often Laura and myself gravitate toward that kind of subject matter in animation that it does manifest itself in several ways. With guy directors, it tends to be sort of a machismo sexuality, and that's sort of paired with strong comedic or surreal elements. So we have Bill Plimpton, Andreas Hakadi, etc. Uh, and then when you have perspectives from female writers and directors, they tend to interweave sexuality and psychology a little more thoughtfully, which I think is why films by female directors have thus far been more interesting discussion points uh, for the intimate animation series. And then there are films where anything that approximates the role of sex in a love story is kind of uh, hard to pin down. Uh, Rekha Bukshi's film, for example, Love, that's one of the best examples of that I've seen in quite a long time. And perhaps unfairly, other films that do sort of the abstract love story kind of thing will be in her film's shadow for quite a while. So again, it's a personal taste thing, I guess. 
What came to mind actually with this one, and probably did with you as well, Rhiannon Evans' film, not uh, Fulfillment, the one she did like nearly 10 years ago, uh, Heartstrings. Yes, yeah. And that was, you know, two characters entwined by wool and thread and, you know. A metaphor for a relationship. It, it was it was sort of the same film, wasn't it? Like, except different kind of approach to the, you know, a sort of more stark environment and more figures, I guess, but essentially it was doing uh, the same thing. What was different with uh, Anushka's film was the animation of the threads weaving their way through the characters and things like that. I could appreciate the effort that that might have taken. And I was sat wondering, uh, was there wire in that? How did they do that for certain things? And But yeah, you're right. It, it, is a, it is something that we have seen before. In all honesty, I did enjoy Heartstrings more. I've picked up on, I mean, it, you know, I know people who... I guess had some involvement in it that are very happy, obviously. I assume people who are friends with her. From people who don't know the filmmakers or are outside of that world or whatever, uh, I've picked up on a little bit of annoyance. But honestly, I mean, today, these days, everyone's annoyed at everyone and everything all the time. So she's fitting right <laughs> in, frankly. Um, <laughs> something that did occur to me fleetingly, I dare say, uh, was that as of this January that just passed, and I don't know if I told you this already, Clementhrow would have been eligible for a BAFTA. I mean, it wouldn't have won it, but it would have been eligible to submit it, as per the, you know, what the rules are of what qualifies a film. Uh, for those of you who are just joining us and don't know what that word means, Clementhrow is this dumb little film I did a few years ago that's been doing the rounds at festivals. If you've seen it, you can appreciate how ridiculous it would be to actually submit it to BAFTA for consideration. But when I did get that memo that, by the way, this now qualifies your film for BAFTA submission, there was this brief moment where a mischievous voice in my head's like, why don't you do it? Because mm. if it went through, imagine how pissed off everyone would be. <laughs> you know, I'd submit it not for the legitimate furtherance of my career, but as a kind of Andy Kaufman-esque jape. But then a lot of filmmakers I know who would kind of have a similar attitude about their films in all honesty, they could put aside that sort of self-effacement or humility or quasi-humility, say to themselves, well, actually, far worse films have been rewarded far more. And I'm not specifically talking about this year. I mean, in general, we're talking about just how, what's the, what, what would be a good word? Boneheaded, some of the Oscar logic has been in the past. Yeah. And it's sort of unfair. I think there are a lot of films that when not burdened by self-awareness, they're kind of regarded as high art just because a couple of people at the right time said so. And then it's sort of unfair. What if he did just make a film and he never thought in a million years it'd get nominated for a BAFTA or an Oscar? Uh, and then it does. Well, obviously, nine times out of ten, you'll see that through, you know, unless you're Marlon Brando or George C. Scott. Most people, let's be honest, have had enough shit in their life to deal with where that kind of validation, no matter how arbitrary or circumstantial it may be, it will be welcomed with open arms. And then you got people shitting on you for doing well because they thought the other person's <laughs> film was better. It's like, say you're Adele, and you're up against Beyonce, and... Uh, <laughs> at the end of the day, I could kind of level criticisms against the ones that win, but it's sort of unfair to in a sense you know they didn't i mean i don't know if she even would have been the one to submit it it probably would have been the school but. i i would imagine it is the school i would imagine I, I don't know how many people enter into the baftas i don't have that kind of information to hand but it does seem a little bit weird that every single year it is just student films considering the amount of uh short films that are submitted uh, or seen, or we've seen in festivals throughout the year, um, and filmmakers like yourselves that would have got that reminder. Is it expensive to enter? Is it like, you know, how much is it to enter? Uh, I don't remember. I mean, I didn't really entertain it long enough to kind of yeah. go that deep into it. I I don't know if you even have to pay. I guess maybe you do. Yeah. It didn't get to that point, like I say. Um, I guess it, if you hadn't made a DCP at that point, you'd probably need to. But if you've made a short film with a company then they would pay. If it's like, say, 50 quid, then yeah. they'd, they'd have a punt, wouldn't they? I mean, what's 50 quid? And the and a university would. And was there another NFTS film that you would have preferred to see get the 
nomination or win? Ooh, um, I was surprised not to see. Um, I was surprised not to see wrong end of the stick, uh, given a little bit more love, or uh, if we're picking nice uh, NFTS films. I liked Fishwick this year. I thought it was a nice film. I liked Wrong End of the Stick too. You know, it's it's right up my alley. Um, as far as like the BAFTAs go, quite a lot of animated scrotums in it. <laughs> which it's his own category. I don't know if they have any kind of you know policies about that, but <laughs> or if they're just snobs. <laughs> like, well, <laughs> Too many scrotums in my films. Oh, Uh, it's one too many. Someone (laughs) hand me a drink so I can take a swig and spit it out dramatically. I don't know if I was going to like cite uh, a reason. It's like we're in the room, Ben. It's like we're in the room (laughs) where they're doing the judging. Do they show the films on the night? Uh, I (laughs) show like a little clip. (laughs) Hey, wait—that was the that was the one where she like filmed like live action people and rotoscoped on top of it, wasn't it? Uh, to a certain extent. Yeah, that would have been a rough gig to get. <laughs> <laughs> if you could just bend yourself over there. <laughs> Why am I wearing a deer mask? Don't question the process. We're making art here. <laughs> yeah, that was, a, that was a great one. I mean, I, I really liked Wrong End of the Stick because it, it looked like something straight from Monkey Dust, <laughs> which, is, which is a win for me. You could have that week by week in, in Monkey Dust. You know, there's a film that I want to see again. I saw the work in process on those uh, on those links. Uh, me and Laura, it's called uh, Spaghetti Junction. Hmm. Do you know what ever happened to that? Because that sort of seemed to have disappeared. Uh, I've absolutely no idea. Because yeah. it wasn't on that uh, screening room link either. Hmm. And I'm, I, I wonder, was it even a student film or some kind of collaboration thing? It's one of those like ensemble, like lots of things going on in a kind of village slash town slash it sort of all takes place at the uh, intersection of this um you know all these highways and byways it's a spaghetti junction essentially and uh yeah there isn't a lot on it if you type in spaghetti junction nfts oh that does look nice yeah i found a uh facebook link uh panan amim animation i would presume it does look very nice, indeed. It wasn't quite done, the version we saw. Like, some of the character animation needed some work mm-hmm. and needed some colouring. And directed by Noor Tadja, uh, animation director from Israel. There's a bunch of stills from it. If you go to cinema.com, at cinema, spelled S-I-N-N-E-M-A, uh, you can have a little look for it there, and there's some animation there. Anyway, I don't know what... I guess, apparently, it did premiere, but I don't know where it went. <laughs> Some films just disappear, and then you hope that they show up online. Uh, there's one that did, like uh, that um, Goat Door. Mm-hmm. Such a gorgeous film. That could have been one that went home with some really major awards, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was sort of underrepresented, I guess, on the festival circuit. It went online about a year ago. Mm-hmm. I think also he's the kind of guy, the director, who would probably never really struggle to get work and visibility, so maybe it was less of a necessity, you know. Because mm-hmm. some people, I think, well, after you've reached a certain point in your career where you just get regular work, you make the film and that set aside the creative itch, and then some people that will be enough, and then other people maybe there's like an ego thing as well, if you're not struggling elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're struggling, then you'll fucking send it to every festival under the sun, you know, <laughs> you'll devote, you know, your weekends to it, you'll, you know... But like a budget for submission fees. Sometimes it just takes that perseverance at the beginning for somebody to notice your film and somebody to take a punt on it. I know speaking as uh, somebody who programs for an animation festival, it's that we do look at what other animation festivals play. Obviously, it doesn't make much of a difference on our selection. We will select films regardless. Uh, but if something's been submitted and we've seen it before, we then go into our selection knowing that we like that film because we've seen it at another animation festival. So mm. that's where, where these things kind of snowball from. If it's not been submitted, then we don't play it. You know, it's simple as that. But if it has been submitted and we did enjoy it, then it's already got a foot in the door. Mm. So sometimes it just takes that perseverance. It did. 
I think we were talking about the BAFTAs about 15 minutes ago. Uh, I kind of think we, we exhausted it, didn't we? Oh, no, there was uh, <laughs> one more category, I guess. Yeah, VFX went to the Jungle Book, Ben. Well, I guess they uh, they figured they had to throw something to the little guy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the uh, live action, in uh, inverted commas, in quotation marks, rather. Anyway, it's not live action. Stop calling it live action. Jungle Book. Are you getting excited for the remake of Beauty and the Beast? I saw, <laughs> I saw an image of it that was released on Twitter earlier on today. It was Emma Watson doing her best, and I'm sure she's going to be great in it. Just looking at this CG beast, and she's looking at it in, with all the sincerity, all the sincerity she can muster, and it's this CGI goat looking down at a book or something, and it just looks ridiculous. I mean, we've seen the. Lumiere and Cogsworth and Mrs. Potts and all these characters that have been animated looking just... Dis- they look Nightmarish? Nightmarish. They look like the f***ing Transformers. Just there's too much detail. It's ridiculous. But, uh, but people are getting so excited for it. Like really, really, really excited for it because it's Emma Watson and it's Beauty and the Beast. It's the perfect combination of all these sort of things. Hmm. People are getting giddy about it. I'm not, to answer your question, Ben. <laughs> are you getting giddy about it? The original film wasn't my favourite film of all time, but there are sequences in it that are so wonderful hmm. that I just kind of feel like, why bother going back to that? You know, Because it's clearly that they're trying to redo their movie. They're not trying to redo the old fable. Mm-hmm. on which it's based. They're making a movie, a live-action movie, out of their cartoon, essentially. And this has been the case for a long while. Most of the films that have been re-released are based on the Disney the Disney versions. You know, The Jungle Book yeah. is not based on the ori- original Rudyard Kipling uh, story. Obviously, it's got a thread for him, but this is like a, it's like a new generation of these Disney shorts. So, yeah, BAFTAs, that's done and dusted for another year. Uh, anything to add to the... Uh... The Oscar discussion that uh, has been ongoing the last couple of episodes. <laughs> the, the, the continued Oscar whinge. Any, any new thoughts? Any, uh, any changes of uh, mind? I've finally seen Pear Cider and Cigarettes, mm-hmm. which has changed my mind completely. I'm, I'm glad I took the effort to, to finally see it. It is a fantastic film, and I would say... I th- I would be happy if it won. Well, that's good. That's a sunnier outlook. <laughs> How about yourself, Ben? Have you been? Uh, uh, has your mind been changed? Has your sort of opinion been swayed? Uh, well, I, you know, as as we've sort of discussed at length, my attitude about the the validity of the Oscars as a legitimate barometer of quality, <laughs> I can I can only sort of say which ones I like, and I. I did like uh, Pear Cider and Cigarettes. I would say that certainly there's more for someone like me to enjoy than, like from a story perspective, than a film like Borrowed Time or Piper, for example, which while, you know, they've got all of the ingredients of a very watchable films, they don't stand up quite as much to repeat viewing. Uh, whereas Pear Cider and Cigarettes, to me, kind of speaks to a rather specific impulse I have to exorcise tales like you know autobiographical tales and things like that through fiction or through creative or not so creative writing comics graphic novels that kind of thing i don't know if you remember because it was a long time ago but my the graphic novel i did like five years ago now there were chapters in that that were dedicated to people in my life that i felt i'd sort of failed and writing about them was kind of a way of getting my thoughts in order about that Mm. Mostly it was a fictional book, but those three chapters in particular were sort of taken from real life. And that was something that I kind of identified with this story, which from what I gather is, it says it's a documentary. Now, so is this a real, like, is it nonfiction? Yeah, it's a documentary. Right. That's, that's one of the most compelling things about this film, is its sincerity, the fact that it is a documentary, which is great. Well, it's interesting that they've categorized it as documentary, rather than simply non-fiction. Because documentary, in the past, I think is generally what that conjures up as a term is various contributions, various sources kind of coming together 
talking heads, interviews, conflicting takes on a situation, trying to kind of put this amalgam of ideas together to create a overall picture of an event as it played out or a person or a movement, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so this like, really is more kind of one person's reminiscence of a man in his life, his friend, who he tried very hard to kind of keep on uh, an even keel and uh, found it increasingly hard to do so, as uh, some people in our lives prove to be rather self-destructive. They come up with <laughs> more ambitious and more determined ways of destroying themselves. They kind of work out cunning ways to do it so they can kind of elude the well-intentioned grasp of people who are trying to keep them from doing that stuff. And this is a guy who's essentially, you know, he's killing himself with, uh, well, he's got a failing liver. Mm-hmm. And uh, his lifestyle does not do much to improve the situation. And then what you have sort of married with that is this very full-on 2.5D mixed with very vibrant, dynamic, full animation, kind of a motion comic almost. You know, it's, it's, it feels like a graphic novel that's being kind of like smushed into your face. That's probably because it is based on a, on a graphic novel that he, he actually put together. You, you can buy the story as a graphic novel. Yeah. It's odd when it comes to animated documentary, isn't it? Because if you were to say that this was a participatory or reflexive documentary in live action, you might use clips from their trip to China. Old found footage or um, old video cameras or something like that. Uh, an, an old commentary of the events actually happening. But because it's animated, because it's, as you say, a reminiscence, it's through animation that delivers something slightly different that delivers uh the director's best efforts to illustrate what actually happened but in sometimes obviously it's embellished slightly as well uh, it's particularly through the lens of an artist uh, so it's stylized in such a way and in this film it's stylized in such a beautiful way i mean you really feel yourself sat on that plane or you know you feel the punches when they land it's a it's a gritty story and yeah, I think it definitely suits his writing style. You can't sort of look away from it, mm. you know. You know what it kind of um, also sort of felt like as like as well as that kind of graphic novel thing. But well, this feels like the linking cinematics cutscenes in like a, a stylized video game as well. Some of the ones that kind of have that graphic novel backbone to them Mm -hmm. and then it kind of it sort of made sense because i was sort of looking at his other work and he's done some stuff like video game stuff he did that wonderful uh beatles animation he did the the very reason i bought an xbox i actually i have to say like that overshadowed the game yeah yeah. like it it, it's such a beautiful sequence even though i i was really looking forward to it around the time it came and i found myself not as enamored of the game as i was with that uh, wonderful sequence yeah man i did, I, i'm a huge as you know a massive beatles fan uh so seeing a gorillas-esque uh a, you know interpretation of the beatles it really brought it to that modern era as well yeah it brought it bang up to date and it did something similar to what the uh free as a bird music video did do you remember that uh the yeah uh, where you were basically a bird flying around presumably Liverpool, but the yellow submarine would pop up. Um, you'd see people crossing the road. You'd see all the peop- all the things that are in Beatles songs would prop up in this uh, music video. And the same happened in this opening sequence, which was uh, incredibly well put together. Robert obviously didn't direct that, um, but he did have a huge hand in the design, uh, which you know is, is quite, a, quite a good chunk of the impact there. I enjoyed pretending to be Ringo, pretending to be Paul, you know, with my pretend Hofner bass. <laughs> did you get a little drum set with it? I did, yeah. Well, I went whole hog. I spent all my money on it, you know, all, all my pocket money, Ben. I've only played it with the guitar, so I haven't experienced the full version, I guess. How the hell can you say you played it? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I'm a fraud! <laughs> I, I, I've got the sort of Paul McCartney Hofner bass, and people sometimes come around the flat and, if you know, the cupboards open or whatever, they'll see it and they'll go, oh, you've got it. Oh, no, it's plastic. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm talented and big-headed enough to own <laughs> Paul McCartney off the base. Yeah. So, yeah, um, comparing Pear Cider and Cigarettes to the other films in competition, uh, I would say 
for the Oscars, Ben. Where do you place it? It's a little tricky because it's sort of a different beast than the other films. It's much longer. Mm. It feels more like a kind of TV special than a short film, you know. Uh, it feels it feels like there's more kind of to it, in a way. So I, it, it's a tricky thing. I mean, I kind of feel like, in the sense that it's separate from the others in my head, my attitude is kind of the same as it was the last time we talked about it. But certainly, like, looking at it as its own piece of art, you know, I think that there's tremendous value to it. Uh, I guess, that you know, by a te- kind of technicality, it is part of the same category. But you almost feel like, because animated films have been nominated in the documentary category, I'm pretty sure. You almost feel like maybe that would have been an, it's a better place for it. Well, um, Neighbours, Norman McLaren's film, won its Oscar, not through uh, the animated short category, but through documentary. There was one recently, actually. I didn't actually see it uh, in the end, but I remember there was a, a documentary on like driving or something mm. a couple of years ago that was... It was animated, but it wasn't in the animation category. It was in the documentary category. Does this speak to the way that the Oscars select their films, Ben? Do you think? Because it's a very American year. I mean, they've had a they've had a good few years. The winners, I can never fathom when they pick a winner, but I think the selections has always have have always been good. I mean, if we look to last year's selection, I had very little to complain about. I'm sure I did complain, but you had. Richard Williams uh, with Prologue. Um, you had the Pixar film Sanjay Super Team. You had Constantine uh, Bronzit's uh, Cosmos film. And you had World of Tomorrow with Don Hertzfeld. So there's, that's just quite a strong lineup. The winner was the Bear Story, the teddy bear film. Which I think was a, a source of some complaining, if I remember uh, correctly. It was a source of very vocal whinging. Mm. You know, a few years prior do you remember when mr hublo won oh yeah yeah you know so they're not (laughs) and then you can go even further back to the uh, what was it called that ridiculous uh tub tubs chub chubs the chub chubs or something like that it was like it was (laughs) like a wacky film about set on an alien world and it was paced like an old uh tex avery short but not as good as it in any way uh it was like the early 2000s and it was up against like Mount Head, something that should have won, you know, in hindsight. But the Oscars gave it to this wacky CG shot. And in an age where animated short films have evolved to um, to something beyond the commercial, to, uh, to, the, to something which is more exploratory or, you know, experimental even, why they continue to pick the sort of fluffy films baffles me. I've had that rant about 15 times on this podcast, haven't I? <laughs> well, yes, but I think that... <laughs> I use different words every time. It's a rant that has staying power. <laughs> Shall we move things in a more uh, positive direction then and introduce ourselves to Mr. Robert Valley? Yes, let's. Yeah, this is a conversation with uh, director Robert Valley of Passion Pictures. It's a very personal story, Pear Cider and Cigarettes. I've found it almost verged on documentary. Yeah. I would say documentary, sort of animation slash documentary. Uh, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about the initial drive to create this film. Well, I kind of definitely felt like I wanted to sort of get out from behind this um, this treadmill I was on, where I was kind of like just working on other people's projects all the time. And um, I kind of felt like uh, through through the books that I had sort of like a, a storytelling. I had my own sort of stories I like to tell and ways I like to tell them. And, uh, you know, to be honest, nobody was really throwing money at me to make a film because, uh, you know, I'm more or less a first-time filmmaker. And uh, I thought, well, you know, I could wait around. I, I thought that once the books were done, I'd have something solid enough to show people to try to get investments on board, investors on board. But that wasn't really, it wasn't really in the cards. And I thought, well, you know, I'm just going to start working on it. And so I thought for sure, at a certain point, I had a teaser, like five minutes long, and that would have enough information along with the books to sort of communicate what the film was about. 
And I thought, ah, at some point, I'll get investors on board. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And uh, it never really happened. And uh, I think uh, at, at a certain point, I just thought, wow, I don't really want, you know, I'm, I'm far enough along. I can see the end in sight. And I kind of felt like anybody that was going to throw money at the project would probably want to have their opinion heard. And this was the last place where I wanted to hear people's opinions on this particular film. So I just sort of continued on. And, um, you know, this co-production with Passion sort of kicked in towards the end of the job. Basically, when all the animation was done was when we started to, to um, come together in a co-production to, you know, to finish the film because it definitely needed some polish and... I had about seventy or sixty-five thousand dollars of music licensing I wanted to pursue, and uh, and then you know I knew people here and the the producers, so we, you know, quite happily joined forces and got the film finished. And uh, yeah, it's been good, you know. Uh, but I definitely had to hold on to it for the first little while, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, when you say you could see that the end was in sight. Was it actually as insight as you, uh, in, in retrospect, as it actually was? I was definitely almost finished the animation, which I, I sort of did all that by, you know, doing freelance work while I was working on the film. Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, you know, didn't, uh, you know, just did it like that. I did one week of work every month to pay the rent and pay for food and stuff like that. I don't know how, how comfortable you'd be telling us a little bit about about techno and about your relationship and and this kind of the driving force behind the film. Yeah, well, techno, you know, he was an interesting guy. He, he was troubled, uh, not really from you know a youth, but he was definitely troubled later on. And um, he was in a he was in a car accident. He was basically crippled from that car accident. But more so than that, he was his, his brain was you know it was completely. You know, he, 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 <laughs> he, he, uh, you know, he had a very significant head injury that changed his personality. And so, you know, he wasn't just quite the same guy after that. So, uh, that was frustrating for him. It, it's normal, I think, apparently for people who are the victims of head injuries to end up with some sort of, uh, addiction problems, which was exactly what happened to him, you know, uh. He just completely fell into it, and it wasn't long, you know, a few short years later that he was, he had, things had progressed to where he needed a liver transplant, and because he was such a ferocious drunk, he couldn't get one in Canada, because he, he, they won't put you on the, the, the transplant list if you're an alcoholic. Um, but, you know, he became very rich from that car accident, because, uh, Somehow they managed to uh, sue the driver or something. It was, it was sort of a bit more convoluted than that, but he ended up with a, just over a million dollars, which seemed like a lot to us back then. And so it was this weird combination of good and bad luck where he was, you know, for the most part, uh, a ferocious alcoholic, and he was very rich at the same time. And then that's where, you know, he just... You know, like I said, he needed a liver, and he could afford to get one. He, I guess you call it like organ transplant tourism. And he ended up in in China, where he uh, he was able to sort of uh, make an arrangement to get a new liver for two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. But it didn't quite work out like that because he ended up there for way longer than he was expecting. So you know, to make a long story short. It was a very sort of, you know, it's a bad situation he was in. And, uh, you know, I kind of got pulled into it because I was, I was a friend of his. And and uh, he was basically just in a bad way and he kind of needed some help. So, you know, I didn't really, really want to get into that situation, but, uh, but I did. And so that's kind of what the film's about. Mm. It's just about something that happened. To somebody that I knew. When it comes to creating stories, you've gone for a uh, 
well, as you described earlier on, a, a documentary route, something which has come from life. Whereas yeah. uh, you have worked in the past on, well, especially on commissions, uh, on a more kind of fictitious, uh, you know, aspects. What is it about reality? What is it about the, uh, well, in this case, almost autobiographical um, documentary style of filmmaking that, that appealed to you? Well, I was never really the kind of guy to sit around and sort of um, make up like a scenario and a bunch of characters and, you know, it's just not something I really do. So the there's plenty of, you know, stories in, in, my, uh, in my books where I'm just sort of playing around with, uh, you know, things that happened to me, the kind of things I was into back then, uh, stories about friends of mine. So... That kind of theme was established pretty early on in, in my in my in my books. So, but the the problem was that they were all sort of very short in length. They're all short stories, and I kind of felt like, uh, you know, book sales were kind of low, and I was sort of thought, well, maybe if I pump up the story so it's it was a better read and a bit longer of a story, maybe I might be able to solve the puzzle of the the low book sales. And so, you know, everything was motiv motivated in that kind of way. And there's so much in the uh, in Pear Cider and Cigarettes that could have made short films. I mean, near the end of the film, where you're getting shut down at the airport, that yeah. that could be uh, a story in of itself. You know, that's kind of like a sort of a harrowing twist in this this epic, but it could be its own mini-story. Mini I mean, it's great to see it all together. Yeah, well, you know, that was a f***-up. I sort of overstayed my visa. And, uh, you know, it just... It was, it was weird, you know, just... The way the end of the story plays out, you think it's going to turn out one way, and then something else happens at the end. So that was precisely the way I remembered the events mm -hmm. taking place. It was, it was definitely like a roller coaster, it felt like. Yeah. And were you uh, sketching and documenting this as it was going along, as the film suggests? No, I was working on another book. On mm -hmm. my, I think I was working on my second book. Uh, so it was kind of unrelated, but, you know, I think I wasn't really planning on, you know, spinning this thing off into a book. Mm -hmm. So, but I definitely had some, you know, I remember the whole thing quite vividly, I think. Yeah. Um, we, the whole thing is is a very sort of vivid retelling. I mean, I, um, I mean, o only you know how how it all turned out and how it all looked and stuff. But the colours that are used and the 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 ways that you use the point of view shot, it is like you are sat in the same chair that you were sat in at one point, or in the in the hospital room with uh, techno, or or in the back of the cab, or you know, through, you are a real as a viewer, you are a real part of this journey. And some of the shots in the film, and like much of your artwork, is like a big sweeping shot. And I wondered if you'd, you'd ever sort of considered creating a more sort of immersive piece of work, like something in VR or something of that ilk. I like I like basic film language. It's, you know, cutting in, cutting, you know, just going in for close-ups and different kinds of shots and, you know, that kind of film language, which which is sort of... It's uh, something that we've all become very used to. Is uh, you know, we can't really do that in VR, so it's kind of weird. Mm. So it's like rewriting a rule book, then, basically. Yeah, or going back to like you know, this is actually the way we we perceive things. There's no cutting in real life. You know, we don't cut into close-ups mm -hmm. when you're talking to somebody. That's that's all. You know, that's uh, that's a language that was introduced to us. That's part of something that we were, we were all sort of used to, right? So, in, in your mind, uh, when you're immersed within pear cider and cigarettes in the back of that cab, or on that plane, yeah. that is as pure as it can get? <laughs> well, that's as near as I can recall, yeah. I believe. Yeah. That's kind of what I, what I remembered. Excellent. I don't know what, what your kind of... Oh, well, I'm, I'm sure Passion are absolutely delighted, but what's your reaction been to the way that the film has been received? Um, yeah, it's good. You know, like the, the, the beginning, when we launched that film, it kind of didn't do that well. So uh, 
we thought that uh, it was uh, it had run its course. It didn't really get picked up by a lot of festivals or anything. So it was kind of it was disappointing, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And so uh, kind of went went along like that for the first few months, and we didn't really get picked up by the any any uh, major film festivals. And uh, you know, I just thought that was it. And then for, somehow we sort of got qualified for the uh, for the Oscars, you know. And then uh, we made a long list and a short list, and now we're nominated. So it feels like uh, finally, you know, after uh, the better part of you know six or eight months, the film is starting to uh, you know starting to sort of uh, have some success. So. Uh, I think uh, you know it's awesome. Brilliant. What does but, that? Uh, I I'd already sort of uh, accepted the fact that it was it was dead on its feet. And then it came back. Like, yeah, it's like a reform wave. If if you know anything about surfing, you know, like sometimes the wave it just peters out, and then it, sometimes it reforms, and uh, that's how it felt. It felt like a reform wave. Oh, brilliant! But uh, unfortunately, I'm from Barnsley. I know nothing about surfing. <laughs> well, I didn't say I was good. <laughs> um, I mean, what does something like an Oscar nomination do for? Uh, I mean, besides lighting up the switchboards at Passion Pictures and you know your, your website hits and things like that, what does it do for an artist? You know, uh, it, it, we're projecting some publicity that uh, you know, some of which we'll be generating ourselves, and some of it will just be happening uh, as a result of the academies and you know, leading up to it. So we were kind of thinking that the next month would be a really good time to, to put another idea forward for the next project because I think, you know, there's a possibility that people are willing to listen right now. And so it feels like there's an opportunity. But, you know, uh, we're kind of in the middle of a job right now, so it's, it's kind of hard to... I don't necessarily have another film lined up because, I you know, I don't have a lot of other friends that are you know, on, on the brink of death at the moment. So uh, it's just, uh, <laughs> it is what it is. You know, like I said, I'm not the kind of guy to sort of sit down and make up a story, Yeah. you know. So, uh, uh, but I did have an idea the other day, but, uh, you know, we'll just have to see where it goes. I'll tell you one thing is I like this whole music animation thing. I'd like to keep that thing going on. Any, anything with music in it would be great. That is something that really comes across in Pear Cider and from your, your work, it matches music incredibly well. And I think when when uh, we see something like the, the Beatles rock band, I'm sorry to talk about the commissions that you've done in the past, but when we look at stuff like the Beatles rock <laughs> band, yeah. when, when, when we see work, that, like I believe you worked on the Gorillaz um, for, with Passion and, and things like that, it does seem like a perfect match, a real kind of your visuals and the, the type of music that's in this uh, in, in, in Pear Cider and Cigarettes it's a it's a sort of a love letter to a friend but it's also a love letter to a culture uh, and to his culture and his, the things that you know you guys grew up with and, uh, and are involved with and I can it's, it's clearly a film put together by a music connoisseur yeah well you know some of that music it needed to be in that right time pocket in order for it to come off the, you know the, the, the way you know the flavor that I wanted to, to, to have in there and uh, you know a lot of that music the, the Black Sabbath and the Pink Floyd and you know but that's what we were listening to and uh, that was sort of shaping our imaginations back then but uh, there's a lot of other you know music in there that I, I sort of picked up along the way you know listening to it while I was working on the film. So they, they kind of all represent, you know, different stages, you know, uh, along the way. And uh, some music like that Wilco song was in heavy rotation when I was uh, in China with techno. So that sort of seemed appropriate. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, you know, every song means something in there. There's a real nice point where uh, it's like a, a bit of a time lapse and techno's shirts keep changing. Uh, with yeah. all, the diff- all the different bands on, and and I know that the Kickstarter campaign that, that this film originated from was, uh, well, put together mainly for the music. Uh, so obviously that particular soundtrack was very important. Yeah, well, that that rock and roll T-shirt sequence that ended up uh, causing a lot of trouble because uh, you know I was just to be honest, I was just 
I made a book just based on just uh, how I remembered things. But the, you know, the, the, the actual, you know, everything involved with, with having a rock and roll t-shirt sequence was, you know, that, that took our, the, our producer car, man, it took a lot of work to get that stuff sorted out. I remember being in China with techno and we were watching, uh, you know, TV, we were watching Seinfeld and it was so weird to be in China watching George on Seinfeld because you think, ah, you know, it's, it's TV. It's uh, something that, uh, it just goes one way. It just comes out of the box and into your head. But uh, it was so weird because later on, we had to actually send that clip of us watching Seinfeld in China, you know, the animated clip, mm. to, I think it was Warner Brothers, and to George Constanza, whatever his real name is. Jason Alexander, yeah. And uh, so then he had to look at a picture of us, an animated version of us watching him in China. You know what I mean? Like it was really yeah, <laughs> kind of, because you never ever would have thought you'd have any interaction with, with you know, anybody like that. Wow. So uh, he said, yeah, sure. So that was cool. Wow. Well, you picked the right show to watch at the time. I mean, you didn't know at the time it was the right show, but clearly it was. Well, you know what? We didn't have a lot of choice back then. It was before the internet was really available to us. I have spoken to filmmakers in the past that have used like on-demand platforms, not just Vimeo, but other platforms such as that. Uh, what, yeah. what, what's your experience been with it? With the, uh, with the online platform of Vimeo? Yeah. Uh, it's been pretty good. They've been very helpful. You know, and uh, like the, the arrangement with Vimeo, Vimeo has been... It's something that we had uh, sort of put together quite quite some time ago. So uh, you know, financially, it seemed seemed like a good arrangement. And uh, I think the key thing is to try to sort of bring as many views to it as possible. Uh, we're, we sort of uh, offered like a discount code on Vimeo. So uh, if you type in the discount code Oscar, you'll get fifty percent off of the the cost of the movie. Fantastic. You know what? The amount of sales, the people that actually watch the movie is pretty low. So, you know, in this in this month long ramp up to the Oscars, I think I'm trying to trying to get as many people to watch it as possible. I sort of think we're living in an age of Netflix, where people are used to sort of paying seven dollars or eight dollars and getting unlimited content. And I think the dilemma is, you know, it's it's, it's a little tough to get people to sort of pay for like one film and uh, on a pay-per-view sort of uh, kind of way. You know, seriously, p people, and myself included, are just watching stuff on YouTube for free. You know, I, I totally understand it. So, you know, it's just kind of, that's, that's the way this thing is. Yeah. You know, we set it up like this. We, we decided not to go full on to the festival thing because, uh, we went the, the route of uh, offering it online. So, you know, it's, it's part of a big plan that we put together. I, I read somewhere that uh, Pear Cider was put together on, on Photoshop. Yes, that's true. Wow. Well, just open up the timeline and go straight ahead. Is that, is that how, you, how you go for it? That's exactly, yeah, that's exactly it. That's exactly what I'm doing at this very moment. Wow. So um, what does Photoshop present that, other programs such as, I don't know, Toon Boom or TV Paint or Cell Action, uh, what does that provide? Well, at the time, it was the only, um, it was the only uh, software I had on my computer. And, you know, it was the, it was the, you know, I used Photoshop to do my books. So that was, you know, I was pretty, pretty familiar with it. And, uh, and I thought that, by keeping the same uh, software that all the color profiling and the noise textures and, you know, all the little subtle effects that I was laboring, laboring over to get in the, in the book, it would, it, it wouldn't just translate because there was no translation. It was just, you know, that's, it's the same software. So, you know, I, I just decided just to, you know, just to see how far I could get with it. Uh, you must be pleased with the effect. I am, I like 
it's got a little bit of a clunky look to it, so it's it's not like the, the smoothest thing in the world. But uh, I think uh, I kind of like the limitations that it sort of presents. It sort of uh, gives it its own sort of look, you know, that clunky look. It's not fully animated. It just kind of is what it is. Yeah, and I, I think there's there's almost something to restrictions in animation that's very appealing. People who use puppets often find that you know a puppet won't be pushed in every direction, or you know, yeah. it, it, it seems pretty similar to the setup that you've got here. Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah, so working with the limitations, definitely that was kind of cool. No, oh, great stuff. Well, thank you very much. Um, good luck in, in, in for the rest of your time in the UK. Very best of luck on, when is it, February 24th or something like that? Yeah, 26th or something like that. 26th. I mean, I don't want to tell you what to do, but I might want to stick it in the calendar if I were you. Make sure you're not busy on that day. There's a hockey game that day. <laughs> <laughs> so, Robert Valley, thank you very much for talking to Squiggly today. I appreciate it. It was a pleasure to talk to you, Steve. Thank you to Robert Valley discussing his Annie Award-winning, Oscar-nominated short film, Pear Cider and Cigarettes, there. And the Oscar winners are announced this Sunday, February 26th, technically the wee small hours of the 27th here in the UK. Either way, you'll know by Monday morning. And the film is available to buy or rent on Vimeo On Demand. You can learn more at PearCiderAndCigarettes.com, as well as Passion-Pictures.com, you can find Robert on Twitter at Massive Swerve. You can also find me on there at Ben L. Mitchell. Steve is at Mr. Underscore S. Underscore Henderson. Squiggly is at Squiggly. We're also on Facebook, Squiggly Magazine. On Instagram, we're Squiggly Animation. And the main site itself remains Squiggly.com. Don't be a stranger now. Until next time, happy animating. Too many scrotums in my oh. short films. I... <laughs> oh, it's one too many.